but living in Wangaratta, I learned a word that was used by the, in, in, the indigenous folk in the time. And uh, one of the local schools, actually, an alternative school, was actually named uh, after this particular word. And it was actually used in the context of the waterways. And the waterways of that region were actually quite sacred. Uh, farmers who had a waterway through their, their property had a lot of stringent checks and balances. Any time they wanted to do something to their farm, they were subject to an indigenous audit of their property. And in the context of waterways, you had a main river, and Wangaratta had the, uh, has a strong river through there. And then it might branch off at times. Somewhere on the way, maybe the water flow is too strong for a piece of land, and it so will actually break off. And so you have your mainstream and you have a, a stream that kind of branches away from that. And the idea is that it sort of streams off but eventually rejoins the mainstream further up. And the indigenous word used in Wangaratta for that particular alternative stream is called a burinya. And the Catholic education there actually set up a school called burinya because of kids who couldn't make it on the mainstream. A Burinia. In the last five or so weeks, our study of Second Corinthians has kind of been on a bit of a Burinia. The mainstream is expounding on some tough leadership calls and, and talking about the frame of mind that Paul has been in. And one of the vivid examples of that is this aroma of the victory procession and things like that. Things how he's, he's defending himself and his leadership call and stuff. It's some really amazing imagery used there. This mainstream took us to Paul reflecting on a previous visit to Corinth and a previous severe letter that was written to them, and it's reflecting on his anxiety as he sat around Macedonia. And basically, his mission is somewhat on hold until Titus is reunited with him. That's kind of where the mainstream stopped in this passage. The Berenia that broke away is known in theological circles as the Great Digression. It's an essay, a short essay, on what the New Covenant was and how it played out. There's no time to revisit all of it now, but what I can say right now is that the crescendo of the ministry of the New Covenant is a ministry called reconciliation. We are reconciled to God and we are entrusted with this ministry. We are agents of reconciliation ourselves. Reconciliation is a key expression of the kingdom of God. And uh, we both experience it and we can express it as we demonstrate the kingdom to the world around us. And now we're getting back to the mainstream. We're about to read from the mainstream again. Both of them are coming together quite nicely at this point. You've got the Ministry of Reconciliation coming back and meeting with Paul, who is actually coming to a good reconciled position himself. That's kind of where we're at right now. It's poetic. It's beautiful. And uh, we're going to read from that place, uh, chapter 7, and we're going to start at verse 2 today and uh, just look through the rest of this chapter together. Here we go. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. 
I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only, not only by his coming but also by the comfort that you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we were encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. Things have come full circle in this passage now. Again, let me reiterate the history here. Paul visited Corinth in the 18 months between the two letters to the Corinthians we have in our Bibles. There's other writing that has taken place that we don't have today. The end of 1 Corinthians says Timothy's coming. And that happened. Timothy is Paul's right-hand man, one of. Timothy goes there and comes back to Paul with a whole heap of concerns. Paul goes, right, I'm going to come and check it out myself. So he does. That visit was actually quite painful. It was quite tumultuous. It goes down in history as the painful visit. Comes back to where his lodgings are. Really sad about what he'd seen. Smashed emotionally over the conduct that he'd experienced over there. And from that place, he writes a letter through tears. It had a bit of a severe tone to it. It's known as the severe letter. And then his other right-hand man, Titus was sent with that letter to the Corinthian church in the hope that they would repent of its sinful actions. Now, whatever those actions were, we're not 100% sure at this time. And then 
Paul anxiously waited. And what saddens me is that until that could be reconciled over there, Paul's own missional effort seems to be stunted for that time. Doors are opening, and yet I couldn't step through them. Until today, that's pretty much what we knew. Today's passage picks up on that more and gives us a clue about how Paul's thinking and mindset is in this time. And he's thinking it in the in the, uh, the, the context of understanding what this ministry of reconciliation is. And there's three things that I want to tease out real briefly today. First, we see that Paul's love for a congregation here is huge. He is deeply in love with a congregation that has effectively rejected him, that has hurt him, that is doing damage to him. In the opening comments of this passage, he writes that he would live or die alongside them. Living means doing all sorts of life with them. It goes well beyond just tolerating them because Jesus said we had to. And it's a really big thing here to be willing to die alongside them too. Persecution in Corinth wasn't all that much. But Paul writes that if it got to the crunch... Paul would stand in their ranks with them no matter what. That's commitment. That's love. You hurt me, but this is my heart towards you. In the later comments, Paul tells us that he boasted of them to Titus. Just consider that for one moment here. He's written down this tough letter through tears and anxiety. He's rolled it up into a scroll, perhaps, then handed it to Titus, told him to go to Corinth, read it out to them and go sort out their mess. But he does all this with a statement of hopeful pride. He boasted about them. These guys are going to love you. These guys are going to receive you. These guys are going to hear you. These guys are going to respond to you. This congregation hurt him and damaged the thing he holds the dearest the most, the gospel. And he's boasting about them anyway, anticipating their repentance to come. And that would have been an anxious thing for Paul. It's a big thing to boast on something where the person's own experience may vary. Have you ever told someone how good something is? Have you ever boasted about a restaurant or talked something up only for your friends to go eat there and come back and go, yeah, it wasn't so good? I met some, I met some tourists. They were clearly tourists. It was quite funny watching their conduct and I was able to really work it out. You know, they're sitting in Metro uh, through the week and, and, and they're going through their phone trying to tap into the Wi-Fi and, and, uh, you know, and trying to work out where everything is. And, 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 and they're just like sounding lost. They're on the couch across from me. And I'm like, you guys are tourists, aren't you? <laughs> it's like, I know that pain two years ago I was just saying, How, you know, what's up, what are you doing? And they're looking for different things. They're talking about stuff. It turns out they're English. And, and they've driven 
from Adelaide to Mount Gambier on their way to Melbourne and then told me so far how disappointed they are. They, were, they had merit in this. They've driven the Dukes Highway. There ain't no wildlife down there. And they're going, where do we see kangaroos? And so I'm starting the touristy thing. And I'm going, <laughs> just, just look over there. Now, um, but we, they're going, where's the... I'm going, so I'm suggesting, well, when you get to Melbourne, there's, there's Phillip Island Sanctuary, there's, there's the heels thing, there's the zoo. Oh, no, we want to see them in the wild. We weren't told they were everywhere. They are. <laughs> So I actually talked with them and I said, okay, if you go to these little spots around town tonight, about dusk, all right, don't do it at 110 kilometres an hour, okay, it's probably not a good idea at dusk, but go to these little places and sit and wait. And I told them, you'll see kangaroos and you may see emus too. Because without failure, I've seen loads of emus around these different spots. So I went to all these spots, go, you know, up towards Tarpina, there's emus just on the side of the highway. Like, there's just all, these, all this wildlife around the place. They were really happy. I showed them on, on their Google Maps where all the different spots were. They dropped pins, they made notes. Later that night, I had a bit of a thought about it. I really hope they actually got to one of these places and actually saw what I said they would see. I know I would, but sometimes the experience may vary. If I were guests at my home, I'd probably be a tad anxious until they came back to tell me what they'd seen, just so I knew. Paul has done that with Titus in the church in Corinth. He's hurt, but he knows what they can do, and he's quietly but also anxiously confident that they would come through when it mattered. He had a boast. Now I read all this, and I read this passage, and I see Paul's love for a deeply flawed church, a damaged church. Some of the correction written out of Corinth, some of the stuff we look at there, we go, my, oh, my. I ponder his love despite being hurt by them in a big way. I consider the slander against him and the way a consumeristic church is ignoring him basically while he runs for his life. And in his running and in his movements, they're simply calling him fickle. I ponder his response of pride and boast in them and his undying commitment to live and die alongside these people. I ponder the way he speaks well of this congregation to others who will visit them. And I feel a bit of a tug of conviction at times about it. In my own conduct and in general, how we in the West can be towards the church. I think of those who claim a faith but refuse to be engaged with the church. I think of those who won't make fellowship and community a priority. I think of the pastor in Victoria who walked away from it all and opened a caravan park, never to set foot in a church again. I think of the people who don't get their way over trivial matters and get bitter. When 
and I think of all the negative things we can say about churches and congregations. And I stop and think to myself, what happened? Where is the love and the boast? Where is the stay side by side no matter what attitude? Where can those traits demonstrated by Paul be found in the Western Church today? As I read all this, the answer to that is simple. It's in the place where reconciliation is a revelation, a reality, and a ministry, an active one. Second, we see that Paul would not shy away from correcting those he loves. Sometimes it's necessary in this reconciliation deal to actually speak up words that actually have to be, make us an agent of bringing reconciliation. And sometimes that means making people aware that there is an error or something is not right. By nature, I don't like being corrected. It stings. And yet I've got to be able to receive it for my own good. Sometimes I don't like confrontation, so it stings to give it. And yet I know that is also a necessary thing if this ministry of reconciliation is to be a reality in our midst. Paul addresses the, seri- the severe letter that he wrote here. Again, we don't know the contents, but we do know it was a correctional one. And we see that this sort of correction clearly hurt Paul in the way disciplining a child brought hurt to the parent. I lost sight of how many, I lost count of how many times I would hear, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, son. Whack. <laughs> and his initial reaction to penning the letter is a tinge of regret. Perhaps it was at the stage where he proofread his work and he actually asked himself, should he be writing those things? Perhaps it was after Titus jumped on the boat and headed to Corinth with the letter in hand and he goes, there's nothing I can do now. I can't, I can't undo that. I can't change the email. <laughs> Maybe the regret was kicking in then. But either way, it proves there was nothing callous about his corrective actions here. He goes on to say in verse 12 that he tried to write in a way that empowered the church to make its own decisions about how they would respond. He, just, he said, I'm not writing on behalf of the injured party or the injurer. I'm writing on behalf of your convictions in God so that you can draw your conclusions. You can choose what you are going to do with this. It's an empowering letter of correction. We see a healthy resolve and a boldness to correct things in Paul here. Because the ministry of reconciliation sometimes calls for that to happen. And we also see an important principle to work with in the church if correction is to be a thing as well. The verse stands out, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings what? Death. There's two types of sorrow spoken of here. One that reconciles, one does not. Who's seen the TV ads 
You know, the, the industry super ones, compare the pair. And they'll put two people side by side, similar age, similar demographic, similar income, similar industry, and yet the end result is different, right? It's all to do with the super fund. Compare the pair. The story of Jesus' trial, death and resurrection involves a compare the pair story. Compare the pair. Two similar fellas. Similar age. Similar line of work over the last few years. And a very similar experience. As in one significant failure. But two very different results. Can you pick them? Peter and Judas. Both known for selling out Jesus. One saying, here's, give me some cash, I'll hook him up. The one saying, yeah, I don't know him. One wept bitterly. One was drawn to his knees. One was drawn to, to, to deeply godly sorrow. And he was eventually restored to the ministry and calling and salvation that he needed to know. Jesus came and found him. The other one, Judas, he succumbed to worldly sorrow and met a grisly end, according to the Scriptures. Paul is aiming for the first one in this letter. He wanted these guys to feel a sense of sorrow for their part in their wrong against him, around them. To take ownership of the fact that things were not reconciled. And in doing so, he set a standard for ministers from then on. If correction is necessary and if it's appropriate for sorrow to be felt, it must be the godly kind. If there's a letter to be read or a word to be spoken in this regard, it must be bathed in prayer and completely led by the Spirit because anything less is going to be merely human and it's going to draw the wrong sort of sorrow. So we have great love for a damaged church spoken of here. And that's because it belongs to Christ, simply. We have boldness in being an agent of reconciliation. Correction being one of the ways this sometimes needs to be done. And finally, we see this rundown of all these great fruit coming out of a reconciled church. Verse 11 shows us some awesome traits of the reinvigorated church in, in Corinth. When challenged to put things right, they delivered in spades. There was care for their reputation and a desire to clear their names. They went from sorrow to indignation that such things, such sinful things were taking place in their midst. And they were committed to seeing justice done. They would bring correction where is necessary. They would speak against the people that would slander Paul. They would stand for the gospel that they, would, they, were, they were originally taught. Verse 7 tells us their statements about him shifted. Paul has had to defend himself extensively through this letter. But here they've come back to that place of affection and concern for him. And in amongst that, they gained a new friend and fan too. 
a reconciled church and a church that actually faced something not right and actually took it head on and went back to where they need to be. Drew the respect of a young minister named Titus. He went into the situation being the reluctant messenger with a severe letter, with work to be done. And the only positive he had was Paul's boast. Yet he came back refreshed and buoyed by his time in their midst. And finally, the two things that have been eluding Paul during this whole ordeal seem to have come to the full, to completeness. Joy and comfort. Joy and comfort. We know already that he's received those things in Christ's ministry directly to him, all right? Because Jesus is a source of comfort, right? God is the God of comfort. God is the one who provides the joy that we can have that the world can't give. But such was Paul's heart that these things would not be complete until the communities he was invested in were on the same page. He stated previously that his joy is intertwined with theirs. If they are in that place, then so is he. Because joy is a community expression and experience. In this passage, his comfort is also intertwined with theirs. And Paul is able to give news that helps Paul get to that place. The comfort is founded on the realisation that things in Corinth are not as dire as Paul first feared it to be. That where sin was present, it was being addressed and dealt with. That there was health coming back to that congregation and that they were also responding in affection to the people who had founded the congregation in the first place. Paul could come to the point where he understood the work he'd done, the letters he's written, the gospel he's defended, the defenses he's had to make of himself have actually all paid off. And as we wind up this idea, because next week, next week we're going to be talking about solidarity amongst the church even more so, and Peter's going to pick up that, that particular chapter in chapter 8 shortly. But at this point, I've actually come to a, to a realisation here that the ministry of reconciliation simply works. We are reconciled to God. That is an amazing thing. When we were in the wrong, he did everything necessary to put things right. So we receive that reconciliation simply by our faith in him. When everything was wrong, the work of the cross reconciles us. But the ministry that has been entrusted to us to reconcile to each other and to be an agent in seeing other people being reconciled to God, this is also a ministry that works. The church can be a wonderful thing when everybody plays their part in that ministry.
What does the ministry of reconciliation look like in your life right now? Can I challenge you to be faithful to that? Does it involve being an agent of correction because part of reconciliation is that? Then deliver that faithfully. Does it involve doing something missional because your friend is not reconciled with God right now? Then be faithful to that. Can you, is there a point where the boast in the thing that Jesus is building, his church, has kind of depleted and we kind of don't always boast the way we do? Has that boast turned into cynicism? Has it turned into criticism? Has it turned into something less than what it could be? The love and the boast that Paul said, speaks of here personally captures me. And I've actually had to get on my own knees and go, God, I've not been that guy at times. And I know I'm not alone in that. Is there a love for the things that Jesus is doing in our midst? A love for each other? Is there a willingness to address hurts that have been lingering too long in our spirit? It's really hard to teach the world how to be reconciled to God when reconciliation doesn't exist in our own being either. Are things reconciled in you? Are church relationships reconciled? If you're online and you are not in church, do you need to do something that looks like reconciliation in people's in your own context? Is something unreconciled in us, either with God or with each other? Will you listen to the Spirit today and say, when He says... Go and do something with that. Address that. Come before the Father and get reconciled to Him. Go to the people that maybe need to be put right in relationship. Come back to that place of love and boast in what Christ is doing in our midst. And let us be agents and ministers of this thing called reconciliation. Let's close and pray.